It is, uh, again, just surprising. I don't know why it is, but it is surprising. The goodness and the providence of the Lord uh, and his direction for us. Um, we are continuing in our series, The Gospel According to Mark. Uh, we are not uh, adjusting or shifting because of the day necessarily for the teaching. We knew that um, the scripture readings and uh, the songs that we would sing today would be enough to direct our hearts and our minds to the resurrection. And yet the Lord was so good to place us exactly where we are in the gospel according to Mark that we can't help but see and look at his resurrection through uh, these few words that we're going to look at together today. And of course, I'm referring to Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. So if you would, uh, please grab your Bibles and turn there to Mark uh, as we uh, inch ever closer to the end of chapter 12 uh, here in Mark's gospel, what seems like the longest day of Jesus' life and ministry uh, as he has endured uh, from so many the, the constant questioning uh, of his power and his authority, of his, his uh, interpretation of scripture. And now at the end of those questions, uh, Jesus himself asks a question. And in it, he quotes from scripture, uh, from Psalm 110. And so we're going to look at that uh, together today. Mark chapter 12, uh, our text today is very short. Um, please don't uh, be uh, tricked into believing that has anything to do with the brevity of the preaching, uh, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, Mark chapter 12, that was a joke, by the way. Mark chapter 12, <laughs> verses 35 through 37. I was trying to show some self-awareness uh, uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word if you're able? We'll invite you to read out loud along with me. And at the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to respond in true praise by saying thanks be to God. Mark 12, 35 through 37. Let's begin. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard it gladly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Though we are only looking at just a few short verses today, um, we literally could camp out here in this small text for weeks on end uh, because of what Jesus says and what he quotes from, as I mentioned earlier, Psalm 110. 
Uh, we, I preached on Psalm 110 in our Summer in the Psalms back in 2021. And uh, if you remember to that time, you will remember that Psalm 110 is one of the most important texts in the Bible. Well, Pastor, how can you say that? Can you really elevate one text over another? Well, yes, in a certain sense. Does that, does that mean to say it is more inspired than any of the others? No, it is not. But certainly, use of this text in Scripture itself tells us that we should tune in to this text. Because uh, out of all of the Old Testament Scriptures that are quoted, uh, either by our Lord himself or the apostles uh, in the New Testament scriptures, the Psalms generally are quoted more than any of the other uh, Old Testament texts. Yes, of course, they quote from the early historical narratives. They refer to uh, characters that uh, who were real people. I say characters just because that's how we think of them. Uh, but refers to those who lived and died during those historical narratives uh, of the Old Testament, and it refers often to the prophets as well. But far and above, the Psalms are more quoted than any other Old Testament text uh, by our Lord and also by the apostles in the New Testament. Uh, but out of the Psalms... It is Psalm 110 that is quoted more than any of the others by our Lord and by all of the apostles in the New Testament scriptures, uh, leading uh, Martin Luther to say there is no psalm like it in the whole scripture, and it ought to be very dear to the church, seeing that it contains the great article of the faith, that is, Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And this is what is interesting about the moment that Jesus uh, brings this up to those who have been questioning. Uh, notice also that though he asks the question, no one answers. He asks and no one answers. Uh, partly because it was even during this time that such Liberal scholars and theologians, those including in the Sanhedrin, remember that they, uh, as we've talked about in previous weeks, they rejected all but the first five books of the Old Testament as inspired texts. They revered them as, as God-honoring. They revered them as, as uh, uh, books that should be read and learned from, but they did not attribute to the other books of the Old Testament the same kind of a divinely inspired authority as they did the first five books of the Bible. And when it comes to Psalm 110, many of them had begun to question uh, the superscription that is in the text. Now, if you look at your Bible today, you may look down here at Mark chapter 12. Uh, in, in the section that we're reading, I have a superscription over that text that says, Whose son is the Christ? That wasn't Mark. Okay, Mark didn't write that as he was writing in his scroll originally uh, the first copy of the gospel according to Mark. That was added by your translators and publishers. 
to help you as you open up these pages. And if you're looking for a particular text, you can look at the page, and I can look right here, right now, my open Bible. I can see a, a section that's titled, Paying Taxes to Caesar. The Sadducees ask about the resurrection, the great commandment, whose son is the Christ, beware of the scribes. And my eye can be directed to these passages where I can quickly and easily discern where in the narrative of this gospel I am in. It's a helpful tool, but it's not a part of the divinely inspired text. None of the uh, um, books of the Bible have that with one exception, the Psalms. And in the Psalms, there are superscriptions over, not all, but some of the individual Psalms that will uh, give us some kind of clues uh, either to who wrote it or at what time it was being written, perhaps after this battle or before this thing uh, took place, uh, and it will be included in that superscription. Uh, that's how we can know, hey, this psalm was written by David, or this psalm was written by Asaph, or uh, this psalm uh, was written by the sons of Korah. We know that because those superscriptions are included in the divinely inspired text, meaning at the time of authorship, uh, the writer included that there. And of course, in Psalm 110, there is a superscription that says that this is a psalm of David. But people begin to doubt that. And especially if you've already thrown out the psalms themselves as being divinely inspired with the same kind of authority as the first five books of the Bible, it becomes easy to say, well, what if David didn't write it? You know, what if, what if it, someone just wanted to honor David, and so they wrote it about David and said, you know, it's his psalm, it's David's psalm. Well, it means a lot, because if David did not write it, and if it is about David, then it changes the whole meaning of Psalm 110. And it would mean that the Adonai uh, that is referred to in Psalm 110 would be David. But if David wrote the psalm, and it's not about him, but rather someone that he is calling Adonai, then that means that there is someone greater than David. Now I'll ask you just a simple cursory Sunday school type question. Who in all of the kings of Israel was greater than David? There was no one greater than David. There was no one that reigned with more authority. There is no one that reigned uh, in such a way that the kingdom was expanded the way that his was. He ruled with authority. He ruled uh, with in such a way that every king after him, even though he was not the first king, you would almost think he was the first king. People started to forget Saul because David was so great. And every other king that came after him was viewed in the light, if you will, the splendor, the glory of King David. David, more than any other king, in the midst of Saul's disobedience, God sent Samuel to go and to anoint David. 
But even in the anointing of King David, there was a prophecy that was spoken over David that, that David's own seed would reign over the house of Israel forever. Well, there's a problem with that because it didn't take too long for Israel to begin to be divided, number one. Where then there was not just one king over all of the people of Israel, but the kingdom was divided, and then there were two kings, and then not only two kings, but some point along the way, those kings were no longer even related to David. So where is God's promise of David's seed to reign forever on his throne? Well, David, through Psalm 110, gives us an indication of his own belief, his own confession of faith, of what it would mean for his seed to live on the throne forever. There is an indication here that David, in some way, if even to borrow Paul's words, he saw it through a glass darkly. There is some indication that David understands that that scarlet line that stretched from the garden when God first promised that there would be one born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head, that one for whom every patriarch was looking for along the way, David, it seems, began to understand that when God promised that there would be one from his seed that would sit on the throne forever, that it would be that one, that promised son, and no other. This is why Matthew Henry says that some have called this psalm, Psalm 110, David's creed or David's confession of faith because it contains many of the articles of faith. And so it's very important for us to understand that this psalm was not just a psalm about David, was not that. It was a psalm of David about another. And so in Psalm 110, we see the exaltation of the Christ, the Messiah, an anointed one of God as a priest king forever. And so I invite you to go ahead and turn uh, to Psalm 110 so that we can read it together. Uh, this psalm, Psalm 110, I mentioned is quoted more than any other of the Old Testament texts in the New Testament by our Lord and by the apostles, so much so that it is quoted over and referred to over 30 times in the New Testament. 24 of those over 30 times referencing the first two verses of this psalm alone, which is what Jesus himself quotes in our text today when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. A second oracle, the first verse is considered an oracle. It's the word of the Lord. Verses two through four are, uh, excuse me, two through three are response to that. And verse four is a second oracle, a word from the Lord with a response to that. So the second oracle, verse four, also, again, quoted many times, over seven times in the New Testament. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will scatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So here we have this messianic psalm. How do we know this? We'll look at verse number one. You'll notice that, uh, again, your translators and publishers were trying to do you a service and to help you. Why does David say Lord twice? Because those are actually two different words in the Hebrew. Notice that the first Lord in the text is in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But the second Lord is not like that. It's capital L. Small o, small r, small d. What this represents is your translators and publishers trying to help you so that every time you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it's a signal to you that the Hebrew word that's being used is the name of God. The name that was given by God to Moses in the burning bush when he said, I am that I am. So much so that in Hebrew, they don't write out the whole word, but they give you just the first, the, the four consonant letters uh, that are associated with the name of God, the name that we know as Yahweh. This is why that name is called the Tetragrammaton, because it uh, is presented with just the four Letters. Remember uh, Herod, the Tetrarch, it's the same uh, root word there. Remember, yet it was part of a fourth, one fourth of the whole kingdom, uh, Herod the Tetrarch. The, the Tetragrammaton is the, the fourfold name of God that, that is presented in those four letters. And so the second Lord is the word uh, that we end up with Adonai which sometimes is associated with any king. could be a, a man, an earthly king, can be referred to as Adonai. But in this case, again, this is, as the superscription tells us, a psalm of David. David is the Adonai, the anointed Adonai of all the people of Israel. But he's writing... And he says, the Lord says to my Lord. So David writes and says, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Which means what? David's not referring to himself. He's saying there is someone else who is over me, who is greater than me, who is more worthy than me, more holy than me, more anointed than me. But there was no one in all of Israel that was more holy or anointed then King David. And so who must we say that this is referring to? 
is again is why the superscription becomes so important. Because this is a psalm of David. This means that David is writing about someone who is his Lord, King, or Master. But there was no one on earth who was over David at the time of his reign. He was the King of Israel. He was the King over God's chosen nation and people by divine right. And all through the rest of history, when any king, even up into modern times, has declared kingship by divine right, they are borrowing, they are borrowing from the divine right that David has had as the king. The very thing that every other king since him has tried to claim in every nation. And while we know that no king or ruler comes into their position without God's permission and appointment, there was no king whose appointment was more undeniable than David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. Remember that David wasn't born in a palace. Does that sound like someone else we know? He, he, he was a shepherd. He spent his days in the fields tending his father's sheep. And so God says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord, and if you're reading along with me, you'll see that it's the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital the Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house when your days are fulfilled. And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and listen to this. So he says offspring, there's plural insinuated there, and then it changes. He says, and I will establish his kingdom. Something changes. Yes, David, I'm going to bless your house. I'm going to bless your name. I'm going to bless your offspring. But then I'm going to establish his singular kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. This, of course, is speaking of the Messiah that would come from David's own line. This is why the Messiah is sometimes referred to not only as the son of God, but as the son of the son of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We've already heard one man cry out, and Jesus responded, did he not? He did not say, say who? Say what? Who is that? I'm Jesus, son of Joseph, didn't you know? 
No, Jesus responded to his name, to his title, to his identity as the son of David. And healed the man that was asking for mercy. The Messiah was to come from David's line and his throne would be forever. And if ever that point was contested or held in doubt, that it would be one son and one seed and not mere succession is made plain not only in that David's throne, as I mentioned, was eventually overthrown, but also in the further revelation of God's word to the people through the prophets. Let's look at one example that should be familiar to you, a text that we most often associate with the Christmas season, but it should be a text that fills us with hope and encouragement for every season we find ourselves in. Of course, I'm referring to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, where the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah, and he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, listen to this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's not the end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Again, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The zeal of Yahweh. And when it is connected to, in your English, where it says of hosts, Lord of hosts, that means essentially in the most basic vernacular that we can put it in, the God of angel armies. The zeal of the God of angel armies will do this. Right? You ever heard the phrase? Yeah, you you in what army? Right? Someone comes, they says they're gonna do something to you, you stick your chest, oh yeah, you, yeah, you and you in what army, okay? Yeah. You tell me, you're gonna come do it yourself? Jesus is preempting the question. Or excuse me, well, I mean, yes, the Trinity, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, it's all there together. It's their word, it's his word, it's all the word, okay? God preempts the question. He doesn't give you a chance to say, oh yeah, you in what army? He tells you from the beginning, the zeal of the God of angel armies will do it. That's what army. He will do this. And so the promised son of David is to be the promised seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head and to rule and reign forever. This is why those boring genealogies that we so often think of them as are so important and actually so exciting. Because it is through those genealogies that you can trace that scarlet thread or that scarlet cord all the way from the garden straight to the womb of blessed Virgin Mary who gave birth to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was not going to be just any person that could somehow, in their own effort, be righteous. It was always going to be the incarnate Son of God 
born into David's line, the seed of God and of David, that would do it. So there is no doubt that this is a psalm of David, and therefore David is speaking and saying that Yahweh has spoken to the one who is David's Lord and Master, the Messiah who will come from his own loins and be called his son, that he and not David is to sit at Yahweh's right hand and rule and reign until every enemy has become his footstool. This is not a new interpretation. This is exactly the exegesis that Jesus is inviting all of the scribes and the Pharisees and all the Sanhedrin and all the chief priests that are gathered around just berating him with all of these questions. He puts an end to their questions. Remember, after his last answer about the great commandment, it says, that after that, verse uh, Mark 12, verse 34, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. He shuts down their question, and then he poses his own question. And what is he asking them to do? He's asking them to do the work of exegesis that we've just done. To pull out from that text the true meaning of that text. And so, as he taught, he, the, the, he said to the scribes, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? They all knew that the Messiah was to be called the son of David. How can they say that? And then he gives, again, remember, he's already done this with uh, speaking about the resurrection, where he validates the Old Testament scriptures. He, he speaks to them now about the Psalms. And though he credits David, by the way, you ever wanted to know, you know, are, are you sure, Pastor? Is there any chance? Maybe it wasn't David. There's your divine interpretation right there. Jesus himself says, because he was there, by the way, that David wrote it. But he didn't just write it in his own strength and power and inspiration. What does Jesus say? That David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. Meaning what? That this is not just, hey, a great song you should listen to or pay attention to, or from a great book that's good, but not, no, Jesus is saying the Psalms, this Psalm in particular, Psalm 110, written by David, is divinely inspired, which means what? It is the word of the Lord, which means what? It is authoritative. It carries and bears the weight of authority in your life, scribes, in your life, Pharisees, in your life, Sadducees, who have rejected that divinely inspired and authoritative word, and then hang on, in my life, in your life, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus goes on, David himself calls him Lord. 
So how is he his son? See, in the West, we often get things pretty backwards. We have come to a place in our society where we think that if something is new, that means it's great and should be accepted. This is not the way. <laughs> in the ancient Near East and even in the Far East and in most cultures of the world, you don't even get a hearing until you're middle-aged or beyond. What is new and novel and young is often set aside to say, you know, come back when you've got a little more experience. Come back when you've got a little more wisdom. How is that to say that we should reject all things new? No, it doesn't mean that, but we should judge the new by the wisdom of the old. And we shouldn't just accept something because it's old, but we sh certainly should not cast it off without careful consideration. Part of how that was lived out in those cultures and still is today is that you'll never catch a father saying to his son and referring to him as sir. Father doesn't say to the son, yes, sir. But the son certainly says to the father, yes, sir. Why? Because there is a, a, a structure of honor and uh, obedience and, and an understanding of that hierarchy that says, my father deserves greater honor than me. And someday I'll have a son, and I'll deserve greater honor than him. And so on, and so on, and so on. Well, likewise, you would never have David as a father and the king turn to one of his offspring and say to them, Lord. Adonai, unless there was some way that that offspring was before him. Now we start to think about those Old Testament prophecies, do we not, that refer to the Messiah as the Ancient of Days. The eternal one from before all of creation, Jesus, the son of Messiah, the seed, the son of David, is that ancient one, the ancient of days, the one who, though he came in the form of a man, born of a woman, born from the seed of David, yet he was before. He was exalted before David, because he is the son of the Most High God. And so here, Jesus invites the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all that have been berating him with these questions. He invites them to do a little bit of work of exegesis, and he asks them, 
if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they have no answer. They have no answer because if they answered, they would have to admit that it was the promise of God for the Messiah that would come from David's own seed. And that one day he would come. And if they didn't recognize him, they might make the fatal mistake of putting him to death. But what is death? It's an enemy. Death is an enemy. That's why it's right and good and true and beautiful for us, even as believers, to mourn death. We participate in some kind of charade if we get together after the death of a loved one and we don't actually mourn a little bit. Now, are we called to mourn as if those who have lost all hope? No, Paul tells us that that ought not to be, that we ought not to mourn as those who have no hope, but we do mourn. Why? Because death is an enemy. Death is not meant to be. Today, there are some missing here today because they're sick. I don't mean to be vulgar or to use crude language in the pulpit, but I mentioned to some people today that sickness sucks. It's an enemy. It's an enemy for us. And here are these people. They're asking Jesus these questions. And why are they asking him the questions? Why have they been berating him with these questions? Because they are endeavoring to get him to hang himself with his own words in front of the people. They want the people to turn on Jesus. And every time they ask him a question and he comes back with divine wisdom, the people are even more in, in love with Jesus, even more uh, uh, just captured by his words. And it's not working. Their plan is not working. And the pit that they keep digging for Jesus, they keep falling into. The stone that they keep rolling to try and trap him, they get trampled on by. What is there left to do but to get rid of this troublemaker? And so they will trump up charges against him. And they will bring him before the council. And finally, they will, in exasperation, as they can't even get false charges to stick against him, they will ask him if he is the Christ. And Jesus quotes Psalm 110 again. When he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. We've talked about this idea of seated throughout the Gospel of Mark. Remember that it points to authority. To be seated at the right hand of the Father 
is to do what it says in Psalm 110, that is to rule and reign. To rule and reign. And what does it say? Until I put your enemies under your feet. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. Yet another time that this great psalm is quoted in the New Testament scriptures, this time by the Apostle Paul. And what is his subject but the resurrection of Christ and of us as well? Picking up in uh, verse 12, Paul, as he is in 1 Corinthians, is bringing correction to the Corinthian church. Some ways that they have been believing and thinking wrongly, some ways that they have been living and practicing wrongly. Here he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That was something that was happening. There were those in the church who were saying, you know what, guys, sorry, there's no resurrection of the dead. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's using logic with them. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Why? Because as we said at the beginning of our service today, that Christ died on the cross for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. And so if he has not been raised, then what hope do we have? We don't have a hope. And therefore our faith would be in vain. He says we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, that means those who have died before us in Christ, have perished, they're gone. If in Christ, Paul says, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Praise God. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Listen to this. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Pay attention. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy is death. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That Christ himself remains in authority and not under subjection. That God may be all, all in all. Death is an enemy. It's an enemy that must be defeated. And as Jesus withstands these questions from those who are plotting his death, he points them to this great messianic song that speaks of the Messiah who must rule and reign until God has put all things under his feet, all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is death. In other words, what? You can come and you can try to destroy my body thinking that I'm just a man. But in truth, Gluing them in to his own true identity, that he is the Son of God and the Son. He is the Adonai of Psalm 110. And they can come and they can, what did he say? Tear down this temple. Three days, I will raise it up. Jesus said this, of course, not referring to the brick and mortar that the disciples were so, but rather speaking of his own self, his own body, he who is the temple for us, was torn down, was beaten, was crucified and put to death. He didn't just fall asleep. He didn't pass out. On the cross, Jesus Christ took all the cup of God's wrath for us. And he died. He died for you. He died for me. He died for all who put their faith and hope and trust in him. But he is Lord even over death. Therefore, death could not hold him because death has no power. Jesus rose from the dead just as he declared. This means if Jesus has risen from the dead, that all those who put their hope in him will raise also. Paul says in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be 
but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for bird, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also spiritual body. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He goes on to say that we shall be changed, that we shall be transformed. Then it shall come to pass, verse 54, the saying that is written that we sang about this morning. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Interestingly, on the day of Pentecost, Peter himself, in his sermon to those who were gathered, will also quote from Psalm 110. And on that day, speaking, of Jesus as that Adonai, the Adonai of David, who would rule and reign until he made every enemy his footstool. The people said that their hearts were cut to the quick. They asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? Peter didn't say to them, well, don't worry about it. Christ has died and Christ has risen. No, there was a response that was necessary. The work has been done, but it must be applied to your life. And so, Peter said to those whose hearts were cut to the quick in Acts chapter 2, he said to them, repent. Acts 2 verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. They heeded Peter's word. They repented of their sin. They turned away from their sin. They put their trust in Christ. They were baptized 
And they were saved. And the Bible says that God added to the numbers of the church 3,000 souls that day. Just a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that many people believe that the way you get to heaven is by dying. That's not the truth. The way you get to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. Many people believe that if we can just make it to the end and die, when you hear it in the funerals and the words that are spoken and people that you know have not lived the life that they ought to have lived, and yet you'll hear people talk about heaven gaining a new angel or God taking someone because they were so precious. That's not how we gain entrance to heaven. That's not how we inherit eternal life. Eternal life, entrance to heaven comes one way, and it is through the repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Likewise, we cannot say to one another, brother, sister, don't worry about your sins. Jesus died on the cross. You no longer have to worry about it. First, we must say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Repent, therefore, trust in Christ. Turn away from your sins and follow Jesus. It is then, or as the old song says, there grace is applied. And what we will find when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ is that he is no longer there. This is why his cross, a symbol of death, has become a symbol of life for us. Because it was through that wooden portal of the cross that Jesus himself crossed over for us. And though it put him to death, though he was buried, in a borrowed grave, he rose from the dead, conquered, he was victorious over death, over sin, and over the grave, winning victory for himself and for all those who will put their faith in him. May God, by his grace, grant us such faith. And may all those who trust in Christ find that they have received exactly what Peter promised, the gift of the Holy Spirit cries out in their hearts to the God that created them. Abba, Father, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Day. Thank you that Jesus is not just a good man to be trusted, but he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Adonai over all the earth, the Lord himself. I pray, God, that you would, by your spirit today, call us to faith, call us to repentance, call us to Jesus. 
and then you find their forgiveness, acceptance, and joy. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.